Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridion. We are on page 96, starting a new section. We just finished election. Now we're going on to good works or new obedience. And we'll be in this for a little while. And then, of course, we, we get um, some kind of loosely connected things. We're going to talk about the distinction between mortal and venial sin. We're going to talk about the sin against the Holy Spirit. We'll go into the sacraments and spend some time with baptism and the Lord's Supper. And maybe hit another random uh, absolution, of course. Hit another random topic or two prayer, so on and so forth. And then we'll get into some of the last things, eschatology, just kind of a random smattering of things to look forward to as we wend our way to the close of this text. We'll jump into good works or new obedience right after our invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, good works or new obedience. Question 186. Now then, with sin forgiven us, as has thus far been said, does God want us thus to persevere and continue in sin without renewal? What do you think? I like, I like sinning, God likes forgiving, match made in heaven. No. All right, let's take a look at what Chemnitz answers. By no means... On the contrary, those sins are and remain in the saints in this life. Uh, and then Romans seven seventeen through 18 and Psalm 32 cited. In fact, there are a ton of scriptural citations throughout this paragraph. So I'm just going to skip those, commend them to you. Maybe we'll pick a text and look at it shortly after this. Though sins are and remain in the saints in this life, yet God bestows on those who are justified by faith his Holy Spirit, who transforms and renews them. Hence he is called back to back the spirit of regeneration and renewal. And regeneration, like in Titus 3.5, which is quoted here, is palingenesis, and palin is again, like Genesis again, to be regenesist, to be reborn. That's the sense. So regeneration is really rebirth. And renewal is a very similar, I mean, it's, it can only be distinct by degree, but to be made new. So to take that which is old and make it new again, make it altogether different. So clearly some very heavy semantic overlap between regeneration and renewal, and yet enough distinction that we have two different words given us by the Holy Spirit. Kenneth continues, For the Son of God did not redeem us for so great a price in order to procure for us the privilege of shamefulness and the license to live in disgrace freely and with impunity, but to purify unto himself a particular people, one that follows good works, and that with all ungodliness denied, would serve him in holiness and righteousness, and in newness of life, and in good works, which he himself has prepared, that it, or the people, should walk in them. And that's going to be uh, a quotation from Ephesians 2, which we'll look at here in a minute. So one way to start to wrap your head around this, if this is an unfamiliar set of ideas for you, is to think that Christ died for what reason? Yeah, for sin and to take away. Does that mean he's friends and allies with sin? 
No, he dies to put it away forever. So if we understand the gospel, that he bears our sins in order to put them away forever, sin is his enemy. And if we understand that sin is his enemy, how alien a thought is it that we would go on sinning as Christians that grace may abound? So when Christ has set us free, it's always of the utmost importance to talk about what he has set us free from. He has set us free from sin, from death, from the power of the devil. The language of the catechism is he has purchased us. It's going to be really offensive to our 21st century ears, but this is like a master purchasing slaves. Only he purchases us to be his own, whereas formerly we were slaves of sin, slaves of death, slaves of the devil. They snap their fingers and we do. And now he has purchased us away from sin, death, and the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his own holy, precious blood, his innocent sacrifice and death, and in order that we might be his own. So we are his possessions. We are not our own. We are bought at a price, etc. So now we have become slaves and servants of him, not of sin, death, and the devil. So, again, this is kind of Christianity 101, But what's happened, especially in the late 20th and early 21st century, is you've got within broader American evangelicalism a collapse back into Rome with such a heavy emphasis on works and such a heavy emphasis of of the role of works in the life of the Christian that even though on the website it says they believe in justification by grace through faith apart from works, any given 45-minute-long sermon on any given Sunday is about 95% about what you need to do for God. Now, in that milieu, there's been a pushback against that. Not a, not a careful biblical pushback, but just a, what are those guys saying? Let's say the opposite. They're saying good works are, are absolutely important. Let's say they're absolutely not important. They're all about sanctification. Let's be not about sanctification. So it's a reactionary theology to this error. It's just going into the opposite error. So what we want is we want the very careful scriptural clarification that we are indeed justified by grace through faith, apart from our works, on account of Christ alone. But Christ not only forgives our sins, not only justifies us, but also gives us regeneration, renewal, new birth in the Holy Spirit, where we start to will and desire things that we didn't formally, and where we start to cooperate with that Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, through our own freed will that Christ has set us free. We are free indeed. And that's then this concept of, the, of new obedience or regeneration or renewal. All right, let me pause there, see if you have any reflections. Yes, there's one in the back. Hang on one second. Chris gets his first exercise of the day. (laughs) Nice. I've heard some discussions amongst Christians, and it goes something like this. I just, I was baptized when I was a child, but I only recently became a Christian. And their logic is that just now did, I, did it click with me? Did I start to get it? Okay. And, and I'm, I'm now cooperating with the Holy Spirit. But I wasn't before, so therefore I wasn't a Christian mm. before. Mm. That's, I see. Well, I mean, I've heard that discussion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would take that on a case-by-case basis. Who am I talking to? Why are they saying that? What answer can I give that's going to further them in their understanding of the truth or challenge them in their misunderstanding of the truth? Yeah, so as we've covered previously with Chemnitz, our cooperation before, during, or after conversion does not in any way constitute our justification before God. Our justification before God, before conversion, during conversion, after conversion, is all 100% his grace. No works, no efforts. And we're going to see that spelled out in just a minute when we look at the scripture. 
If we stop there, though, we really only have one half, one side of the coin. That gospel is not only a forgiveness of sins, um, again, conversion, before conversion, during conversion, after conversion, it's, it's all God's work, but that work of God is effective in us to create within us a new man and a new heart and the Holy Spirit indwelling, where an unbeliever will, cannot confess the creed. We can confess the creed. An unbeliever doesn't want to go to church. We, even if the flesh wrestles against us on an early Sunday morning, do want to go to church, even though we recognize we don't love God as we ought or our neighbor as we ought. Nonetheless, we do love and we wish we loved more. All of these are realizations wrought in us by the work of the Holy Spirit and are part and parcel of this regeneration, this new birth and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's look, let's look at uh, Ephesians 2. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, hopefully you've got one on your phone, and if you don't have that, there's a few over in that corner by the sliding wall. And if you don't want to bother with it, just listen really carefully. Ephesians chapter 2, you're going to get this beautiful section in Paul's letter that does both what we would call justification and sanctification. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Okay, how much can a dead person participate in his own conversion? Zilch. Lazarus has to be called forth from the tomb. The widow's son who's lying cold and stiff and dead on the bier has to be raised by the word of Jesus. Young man, I say to you, arise. So it's the power of the word that brings the dead to life. And we are, or were, as St. Paul says, dead in trespasses and sins. We have to be made alive by God. So again, before, during, and after conversion, we've got no part. What's evident here is that before conversion and during conversion, we have no part. Because we're dead until we're alive. We can prove the that we have no part after conversion in our justification, uh, probably later in this section and certainly fleshing that out with other verses as well. Okay, so again, we're dead in trespasses. Look at some of the descriptors used. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, this is the unholy spirit, the uh, Satan, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So along with the course of this world, you've got the prince of the power of the air, so you've got the world, the devil, and then the passions of our flesh. So that's what the small catechism is on about and what I was on about in quoting the small catechism, that we've been set free from the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. Those sins forgiven, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, and then a new man wrought within who's in constant combat with sin, death, and the devil, with the world or sin, the world, and the devil, just different ways of thinking about it. Okay? So among whom, verse 3, we, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, he includes the mind because reason isn't free. Reason isn't somehow untainted by sin or free from sin. Reason itself, the mind itself, is corrupted by sin. 
And we were by nature children of wrath. I don't want to make too big of a deal about it, but do look at the past tense. We're dead in the trespasses and sins. And here, we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4 marks the pivot then, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So what is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? The difference between a corpse and a living person. The difference between being spiritually dead in trespasses and completely enslaved to sin and the world and the devil versus being alive and being a slave to Christ, which is being free. Okay, so God made us alive. Christians are alive. Remember that movie where he says, I see dead people. Now, that's, that's how unbelievers are. We live in a zombie land. We live in a zombie land. And our goal is to, well, do you remember in Ezekiel where he's in the valley of the dry bones? That's a spiritual picture And, of course, it portends to the physical resurrection. But in context, it's a spiritual picture of being dead in trespasses, and Israel in particular being dead in their trespasses. Can these bones live? And then God says, prophesy. And so as Ezekiel speaks the word of the Lord, that which is dead comes to life, is made alive by the word. And so that's exactly what's going on here. It's a spiritual resurrection. The spiritual resurrection precedes the physical resurrection. This would be reminiscent to you, and um, this is exactly Paul's argument in Romans 6 when it comes to baptism. That through baptism we have been buried with Christ, and we have already even now been raised with him. It's a spiritual resurrection that's taken place. We wait for the body to catch up, the bodily resurrection. Okay, so just back in context here then. Uh, Verse 4, We who were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is to say, not only were we raised when Christ was raised, because we've been made one with him, but we ascended when Christ ascended, and we were enthroned when Christ was enthroned. That's what it means to be seated with him in the heavenly places. What, where is, according to the creed, Christ seated? The right hand of God the Father Almighty. That's where we are also seated with him. So, in other words, we are already spiritually raised, we are already spiritually reigning, and we are simply waiting for the physical manifestation and fullness of these realities, which will be the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection of the body. But there's an already, a now aspect of what's going on. We are alive We are raised with Christ, and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, note the plural as a curiosity, not the coming age, but the coming ages, this is the first age that we're in, and a verse like this hints that there will not only be a second age, but quite possibly I mean, maybe even the language itself is stronger than that. Indeed, there will be other additional ages. So, speaking to that dynamism of the future, you know, the devil's deluded us with this thing like, okay, as soon as you die and Christ returns, that's a wrap. It's all just kind of, you know, it's like the stories or the movies or the fairy tales. They all lived happily ever after. Or the music fades and the credits roll and, and that's it. That, that is basically the opposite of what the scripture teaches. The new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection of our bodies, is the dawning of an entirely new age. 
So you think of the whole scope and story, the whole, your own personal development, your own birth and personal development within that story, that all constitutes this age. And by the way, this age is likened by St. Paul to the cosmos being a pregnant woman and all of us being in utero. Which is a delightful reflection because you think, compare when you were in utero, how much of it do you really remember? <laughs> would, you, would you consider that a full life? The nine months or less you spent in the womb? Okay, contrast the time you spent in the womb with the time you've had outside of the womb. How much, how much greater everything became. So then, liken this age to time spent in the womb. And the new heavens and the new earth and the next age will be a birth and a full age that will make this just look like gestation. So that's the kind of scope that the Bible sets before us in terms of the future uh, dynamism, um, change, wonder, development, growth, adventure, mystery, joy, the pouring out of God's graces new every morning upon us uh, for, the, for the entirety of the next age and unto the ages of ages. Okay, so pointing that out tangentially here, because it's much needed, Oh, yeah, Paul goes on to say exactly what I was just saying. I got it from him. So, again, six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's what I was getting at. Verse seven, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, in the coming ages, after, this, after Christ returns and this age comes to a close, the new heavens and the new earth raised in bodies perfected, then this is all for the purpose that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. As if he hasn't already. But everything we have in this life in the revelation of God's goodness in Christ Jesus is just a foretaste of the feast to come. And the feasting to come will be the, an entirely new age. So I don't think it is... I mean, in the same way that when you receive the wafer itself on your tongue, it's just a small thing. We have a down deposit. We have a small thing, uh, just a foretaste of what's to come. When I was a little kid, my mom would be making homemade pizza, and the smell was just so wonderful. The smell of the sauce cooking and the sausage being prepared and everything getting ready. And we could not help ourselves. We'd go into the kitchen and beg. So she'd take a little toothpick and stick a sausage and put a little bit of cheese on it and dip it in the sauce, and we would have a foretaste of the feast to come. That's all as wonderful as, as the New Testament is and, the, and Christ with us and the gifts and the glory we have. It's just a foretaste of what's to be unveiled and revealed to us in God's own wonderful ways in the ages to come. So the idea of continuing, continued revelation of God unto us, continued marvel at who God is and marveling in his graces. I mean, this is the dynamic, endless future that we have to look forward to. But it is going to be constituted by things like, um, that we would call time, changes, age. There's, you know, it's like we get this idea that we're just going to blast off into eternity and just be floating there in stasis. That's Wrong in so many ways. We're, we're creatures. Even in heaven right now, there's time. The folks under the altar are saying, how long? And, and time, heaven's time corresponds directly with earth's time. It's one cosmos with one time. Okay. Sorry, I can't help myself. It's not really on topic, but I just can't help myself. It's so great. The gospel is bigger than we conceive way bigger than we conceive, and way bigger than the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins is the essential foundation. It's the beating heart of it all in this age. It's the, it's the start, 
But to think that the forgiveness of sins is like constitutes the fullness of the gospel is to just not pay attention to the Bible. It's like, it's like the precondition. It's like the beginning. It's like the opening. It's necessary, of course. Uh, but it's, just, it's like the seed from the forgiveness of sins then springs forth this gigantic oak of the immeasurable riches of God's grace. Okay. Verse 8, then, we get... Again, we're, we're really focused on salvation. We're really focused on justification here. St. Paul clearly talking about that. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. You're not saved by your own doing. You don't have faith of your own doing. Because again, you were dead in trespasses. You were by nature, children of wrath. So God had to make you alive. God had to give you faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. And that means then that the faith you have, here we finally have the peace, that even after conversion, the faith that is sustained within you is sustained there by God, by his grace, not by any effort or labors. So salvation is 100% a gift. So in this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works before, during, or after, so that no one may boast. If it was before, during, or after conversion, then you could boast. Be like, hey, the, the reason why Jones ended up in hell and I'm in heaven is because I persevered. I kept the faith. He didn't. He was a wimp. Now he's, you know, that, then you would have reason to boast. But Paul here excludes boasting, that no one may boast. It's all a pure gift, not the result of works, before, during, or after. And then 10, now we get to sanctification. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Paul elsewhere likens uh, conversion through the word to a new creation in the same way that in Genesis, God called light out of the darkness. So out of the darkness of our sinful hearts, God brings forth light by proclaiming the gospel to us. And that's the analogy of conversion. So it is a new creation, and that language used explicitly here, that we have now been created anew, created in Christ Jesus. Formerly, we were created in Adam. Now we are a new creature, an entirely new creation, created in Christ Jesus. And for what purpose? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is what the confessions will refer to as the cooperation. This walking in the good works. So, I mean, who's do, who gets the credit? Who's doing the doing? God's the one who creates us in Christ Jesus, sustains us in Christ Jesus, um, compels us to good works internally by the new desires of the new man. Uh, And these very good works themselves God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God, 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 and yet it is indeed we who are walking in them. So we have a part, a cooperation in that. Let me just read you a couple places from the book of Concord that reflect this Pauline teaching on the freedom of the will uh, now that Christ has set us free and on what that means. So let me start with this. I'm going to read a little out of order. I'm going to cherry pick a little. Um, This is Article 2, Free Will in the Solid Declaration. I just commend it to you 100%. If you think my reading of it is somehow suspect or manipulated, go read it for yourself by all means. Okay, so let's start here. There is a great difference between baptized and unbaptized people. And read here, converted and unconverted people. I mean, baptism is just assumed. According to the teaching of St. Paul in Galatians 3.27, and here is that teaching, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ and are made truly regenerate. They now have a freed will. Full stop. As Christ says, they have been made free again. John 8.36 Therefore, they are able not only to hear the word, but also to agree with it and accept it, although in great weakness. We receive in this life only the first fruits of the Spirit. 
The new birth is not complete, but only begun in us. The combat and struggle of the flesh against the spirit remains in the elect and truly regenerate people. For a great difference can be seen among Christians. Not only is it true that one is weak and another strong in the spirit, but each Christian also experiences differences in himself. At one time he is joyful in spirit, and at another fearful and alarmed. At one time he is intense in love, strong in faith and hope, and at another time he is cold and weak. Okay, so now next would be a line like this. As soon as the Holy Spirit has begun his work of regeneration and renewal in us, through the word and holy sacraments, we can and should cooperate through his power, although still in great weakness. This cooperation does not come from our fleshly natural powers, but from the new powers and gifts that the Holy Spirit has begun in us in conversion. So again, it's all to Christ be the glory, to the Holy Spirit be the thanks and praise. But it is nonetheless our cooperation. Here's one more, cooperating in repentance. In conversion, God changes stubborn and unwilling people into willing people through the drawing of his Holy Spirit. After such conversion, in the daily exercise of repentance, a person's regenerate will is not idle, but also cooperates in all the Holy Spirit's works that he does through us. Okay, so just picked out a couple of the many statements that are made here in our Book of Concord that are right in step with St. Paul here. We are workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The argument in Ephesians continues on, but I hope that this is sufficient to show a biblical teaching of what we kind of call justification and sanctification, or salvation followed by regeneration and renewal. Any questions there on Ephesians 2? Okay, so then jumping back into the Enchiridion on question 187, in what does this renewal consist? Scripture summarizes it under two heads, namely that we mortify the passions. Obviously, that means put the passions to death. We mortify the passions or works of the flesh and walk in the Spirit, that we might abstain from evil and do good, that being dead to sin, we should live unto righteousness, that we might put off the old man and put on the new, that we might bring forth not evil, but good fruits. Okay, so it has these two parts, or these two heads. Uh, One negative, we are crucifying, to use Paul's language, the sinful flesh that is within us. We're torturing it, putting it to death. Um, The catechism, Luther speaks of this as a daily drowning of the old Adam. We arise and we immediately begin drowning the old Adam. The way the catechism tells us to do this is to make the sign of the cross in remembrance of our baptism. That's the opening salvo. The first thing you do is make the sign of the cross, and that is your first act of crucifying the sinful flesh. I'm baptized, you are drowning today. Now, of course, the adage, the old Adam is a good swimmer, yes. So we have to... Uh, daily and richly be forgiven, and we have to daily and richly remind ourselves to drown him or crucify him is the biblical language. Okay, so then that negative, but also the positive, that we would seek to do the good, that we would be inspired by who God is and seek to be like him, like father, like son, that we would so love Christ and so come to know Christ that if someone said, hey, who, you know, who would you be? Who do you admire? Who's your hero? If you could snap your fingers and be anyone in the world, every Christian should say, without hesitation, my Lord Jesus. And that's exactly the project of the Holy Spirit, conforming us into the image of Christ, as the scriptures teach.
Okay, let's go on to 188. Is this proposition true? Good works are necessary. All right, well, some of you know the majoristic controversy that took place, uh, George Major, and um, that controversy dealt with in the formula of Concord. Let's just limit ourselves here to what Chemnitz writes. So, good works are necessary, that statement. Let's see what he has to say. It is true both with regard to sense and with regard to the form of sound words. For in the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, these propositions are common and accepted, that good works are necessary, that it is necessary to do good works, that good works should necessarily follow reconciliation, that we necessarily ought to do divinely commanded good works. And the position of Scripture is that good works are to be done because they are necessary on the basis of the command of God, and we are debtors. For the will and command of God is that believers should not be idle, but that they walk, uh, that they walk and exercise themselves in good works. Notice the active language. and I mean, just like you don't lay on a couch and let the gym exercise you. You actually have to like get up and go there and go do it. This, that's the same thing here. Exercise themselves in good works. You actually have to plan it out, think it out, do it. Um, Just like physical exercise is contrary to the desires of the flesh, so also spiritual exercises are, even more so, I should say, contrary to the desires of the flesh. All right, so that they walk and exercise themselves in good works. Hence, Scripture also uses this terminology that the new obedience of the reborn is not arbitrary, but necessary and required. And then look at the whole slew of of Bible verses here quoted. Okay. So let me ask you this question. This will take us back to the majoristic controversy of the 16th century. What if you said good works are necessary for salvation? Are you still comfortable with it? No. (laughs) I mean, it's true that if you have genuine faith... Faith has work, so in that kind of protracted sense, good works are necessary for salvation. But that phrase lends itself to so much misunderstanding and false understanding that it is just not a good phrase. That was the position of George Major, and it's condemned in the Book of Concord. Now, here's a study, and someone makes an error. Let's do not sound biblical theology, but let's do the opposite error. So you have George Major says good works are necessary for salvation. And then you have Nicholas von Amsdorf, cool name but bad theology on this point, who says good works are dangerous, harmful to salvation. Because you're just trying to put up your righteousness instead of Christ. <laughs> well, that's a modern take on Amsdorf's position. Both of those are errors. Both of those are condemned in the Book of Concord. And so you can see that the brilliance of Chemnitz's statement here, it refutes both of these extremes. Good works are necessary for salvation? No. Good works are necessary. Okay. Uh, Good works are detrimental to salvation? No. Good works are necessary. They flow from salvation. So here's the the line cut between uh, these two errors And this is all addressed in the Book of Concord, Formula of Concord, if you'd like. All right, let me pause there. Let me see if you have any reflections, if everything's copacetic. We'll go into question 189. Okay, we've got a hand up here. Just a short thought. Um, Can we say that works is the evidence of our salvation? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the scriptures speak that way. The Lutheran confessions speak that way. Yeah, And generally speaking, there's nothing wrong with looking at the evidence of your salvation, just confirming that you're a Christian. Nothing wrong with that. Um, now, under certain specific and acute persecutions, that can become maybe not the best move because Satan will, uh, in various ways, try to get you to have faith in your faith or faith in your works and try to obscure or replace Christ with these kind of internal spiritual machinations. If you sense any of that, you just need to go, uh, this is the, that phrase, extranos, outside of us, 
and look at the sacraments, the words and sacraments of God. Then the question is not, do I have faith? Or are my good works sufficient to demonstrate the genuineness of my faith? Both of those can be traps of the devil. The question is, has God said, does he lie? God has said, I baptize you. Does he lie? No. Okay, then there's the certainty to which your faith clings. Otherwise, you can get caught in this trap that Satan will try to lead you into where you're having faith in your faith or faith in the fruits of your regeneration instead of faith in Christ. But to recognize that not only is the extranos, the absolute certainty of what Christ has done outside of us on the cross and what Christ proclaims from outside of us to us in the word and sacraments, that has an intranos reality. That's what we've been reading about, a reality inside of us where our hearts are changed. They're made new and they're filled with new impulses and new fruits. And there's nothing self-righteous at all with saying that because St. Paul says that. The scriptures say that. Is is he self-righteous? Clearly not. Is there anything self-righteous in being like, I'm a better man today than I was 10 years ago? There's nothing self-righteous about it. Am I thereby justified? No. But is it objectively true on the basis of many metrics? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Okay, so there's just nothing self-righteous. Am I justified by that? No. Am I going to boast before the throne of God in that? Absolutely not. If anything, that's my debt unto God that I would give him thanks and praise that he's brought me along despite me dragging my feet and resisting him insofar as he has brought me along. And of course, that's great weakness. And of course, we long for that perfection. That's, you know, that's Paul longing for the perfection that we don't yet have. It's not denying that there's some progress in the Christian life. Elsewhere, he states that outright, that the goal of the Christian life is to grow into maturation, into the fullness of the mature man, capital M, man, Christ. But in Romans 7, we lament for that righteousness that we can't, can't yet fully grasp. The good that I want to do, there's the regenerate man. You know, before, I didn't even want to do good. I wanted to do whatever I wanted to do. Now the good that I want to do is impeded by the evil I keep on doing. And the evil that I absolutely denounce and want to mortify and drown, and I hate it and I can't wait to be free from it, um, that evil that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Who will save me from this body of death? Who will bring me to the final maturation? Who will remove this cancer from me that despite all my efforts, I can't fully remove myself? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus my Lord. This will be done. So that's how Romans 7 fits within this whole theology. I mean, Romans 7 is wonderful because it's so comforting. If you agree with the law of God that it is good, that is to say, when it says, you know, you shall have no other gods, when it says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, when it says you shall not murder, when it says you shall not covet, if you agree that that's good and you wish you were that way, St. Paul says, it's no longer you who sin, but rather sin that dwells within you. This cancer that can and will be removed by Christ alone. Okay, so now we're understanding, you know, Romans 7 and those kinds of verses um, used in this context. Let's look at 189. But Paul nevertheless teaches that good works ought not to be done by constraint. And he does this in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Philemon 14, 1 Peter 5, 2. Let's see what Chemnitz answers. The word necessity is sometimes used for constraint or for that which is done unwillingly and is wrung from the unwilling without the approval of the mind. And in this sense, Paul says, not of necessity. For the outward work that is rendered by constraint or unwillingly and with aversion, without a ready heart and mind, according to the inner man, is not truly a good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 again and Philemon 14. For God requires the obedience that is rendered from the mind or heart, though it is not perfect in this life. All right, so again, we're just steering this middle course. That, you know, on the one hand, it's like, 
a good work is not one that's entirely compelled that we do against our will. That's like definitionally not a good work. That's definitionally we're being compelled to do something we don't want to do, um, even if it is good. The flip side of that is then this kind of opposite error where it's like, well, since that's the case, there's no such thing as a good work. I think Kennis does a marvelous job threading the needle between these two errors when he says, God requires obedience that is rendered from the mind or heart. He's given us this new mind or heart. We recognize that it's not perfect in this life. Picking up with his last paragraph, but Paul also calls that necessary which is not arbitrary, but is required by reason of the command and divine will, Romans 13.5 and 1 Corinthians 9.16. And in this sense, it is rightly and well said in the Augsburg Confession and the apology or the defense of the Augsburg Confession that good works are necessary or that it is necessary and required to do good works. Okay, so again, not to lose the forest for the trees, this language of necessary um, is, is not intended to be coercive. It's a declarative statement of what the scriptures themselves indicate, that good works are necessary. They're required by God. Continued obedience in his law is required by God. We're freed from the condemnation of that law. We're freed from trying to use that law as a ladder by which we can attain righteousness. We're freed from those elements of the law. And being set free from those elements of the law, the law now is delightful. That's why St. Paul says, I delight in the law in my inner man. The law, when it's, when it's curse over us, is put away by Christ, simply becomes a reflection of the heart of God and the heart of God for humanity. And so we look at that and we say, yes, that's necessary. And we're compelled to do it. Of course, by God externally in his word, but internally in our hearts. Like, if you could snap your fingers and live a perfect day, would you? Every Christian would say yes. If you could snap your fingers and live a a sinless life for the rest of your days, would you? Every last Christian would say yes. I mean, the more you think about it, the more it'll, like, bring tears to your eyes. It's that, I mean, it's that kind of passionate hungering and thirsting for righteousness that we all have. One of the most miserable things of living a long life is continuing to heap up sins against God. Just, you know, insofar as he blesses you, it's, it's great, but you have this burden of your ongoing sin stacked up and your, your constantly growing sense of your own insufficiency. So, I mean, God uses that obviously just to reaffirm to us the depths of his grace and the, the abundance of our sins disappear like a drop in the ocean of his holy blood and righteousness. That's the lesson to be learned there. But there's still that weight that goes along with it. We are renewed. That, re, that new birth is begun in us and how we long for its completion, how we groan for its completion. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything you want to add? Yes, sir. It just occurred to me that this... Um, you mentioned that your son sitting on the couch and saying, well, Dad, my, the Holy Spirit hasn't moved me to take out the trash. Yeah. Uh, that, that, <laughs> right. Hey, that, Dad, that, don't compel me. Yeah. When, I, when I say, get up right now, or you're right. grounded. Oh, don't compel me. It's not, don't coerce <laughs> me. It's not going to be a good work. <laughs> right. So, like, that just makes me think in this context the, uh, that it could be possible that, you know, um, if you force yourself force someone else or force yourself against your, I mean, can you force yourself? I guess you can, right? Yeah. And you should. Right. Right. (laughs) But you can, you can do, you can do something unwillingly, grudgingly. Yeah. You could do a good work for someone else, but it's not, you're not, for you, it's not a good work. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. I mean, if we're going to just be completely blunt, that's what all of our uh, jobs are. (laughs) No one just decides, I'd like to wake up well before the sunrise, get myself all showered up, and go make money for other people. You know, go be friendly to people who are being rude to me. No one thinks this is a good, right? But we're compelled to do it. Um, And everyone in the world, I mean, this is a great illustration, because everyone in the world is compelled to do it and does it so that he can eat or provide for his family. 
It's not a good work because it's apart from faith and it's entirely by coercion. But a Christian starts, however small, but it's the difference between light and darkness. It's the difference between life and death. That small little spark of the Christian saying, that human boss isn't my boss. Those coworkers aren't really my coworkers. The people, the, the, the customers we serve aren't really the customers. The whole thing is Christ. I am waking up to serve Christ as a holy royal priest. Now the boss and the co-workers and the customers are the form of that sacrifice, the form of that worship. But I'm, I'm not living for these people. I'm living for Christ. And thus Christ would have me serve these people. And a beautiful thing happens there. Not only do you start to love your life and love your job, but you actually ironically start to love the people around you more because they're put in proper order and context. So that, I, again, I understand, I'm, because I'm, I'm very clearly of the flesh too, I understand that we chafe under that, even as Christians. But insofar as there's a single spark of light and life, that is a miracle wrought by God, and it's the difference between heaven and hell. And it's of the utmost importance. And you know, don't let people just constantly pour a bucket of cold water. Well, you don't do it perfectly. <laughs> Thank you, Captain Obvious. But don't harsh my buzz here, because this buzz that Christ has given me is the good works that God has prepared for me to walk in. And they're so precious to him that he keeps a record even of the smallest things. I mean, down to the cup of cold water that I give to a little child in his name that I didn't even notice and totally forgot about. He's, he's sitting there going... I saw that, and that is of value to me. That is important to me. He sees the woman who, you know, she gives her, she gives her last two little mites. She feels terrible, probably, about giving them because everybody else is giving larger sums. No one pays her any attention. No one gives any credit. She probably even sort of internally feels like, I can't believe my life has come to this, that I can give so little. What good is this? This is futile, but I'm going to do it anyway because I love God. And Jesus draws all his disciples together, who are supposed to be these, you know, masters of theology, and he says, look at that. That's faith. That's incredible. So these are the things that God delights in. We should absolutely and can absolutely do this without any uh, scintilla of self-righteousness or boasting or self-aggrandizement, because this is what the Word of God says. You can't be boastful or proud when you're following the word of God. You can't be doing self-righteousness when you're simply listening and repeating the word of God, which is what this project is. So it'll transform your life then, and you'll start to see everything new. And that's the point. That's the blessing of the Spirit. Yes, sir. Um, On the coercion, there's there's a value to coercion. Absolutely. Absolutely. you know, when your child does something wrong and to somebody else and yeah. you make them say, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, are they really sorry? Yeah. No, but you're teaching them that, A, they should be sorry. They should say that they're sorry. And hopefully down the line, they will become sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the master class on this whole idea of that Christians still need coercion and should use coercion is made in the large catechism on the Ten Commandments, which, by the way, fills over half of the entire large catechism. But watch what Luther does there. It's, it's amazing, especially when you see how little he actually says, now because Christ died for you, you should go out and serve others. It's almost never his argument. His argument is because God demands it. Because he promises blessings to those who do it, temporal blessings and eternal blessings to those who do it, and temporal punishments and eternal punishments to those who do not. So there's compulsion in the life of the Christian. Why do we still require compulsion? Chiefly because of the old Adam that is within us. And indeed, that's really the nature of our good works, is we are, in order for the new man to do a good work, he has to compel the old man to go along with it. And if you're compelling the old man to go along with it, then you have become the master of yourself. 
So that's the, you have become a law unto yourself. You have become autonomos. Mm-hmm. I feel like when you were talking about the perfect day. Yeah. And yeah. so having a moment of clarity, but it's going away quickly. So I'll try to be concise here. As we start examining our sinful nature and the things that we need to stop doing, it's easy for the devil to say, well, but Jesus was God, so you can never be like God. You can you just give up. But what you just said was, it sounded like you were talking about as a Christian, you can try to have a perfect day, and it comes from proximity to God's word, and all earthly things fall away. The closer you are to God's word and the love of God, nothing else matters at that point, and then everything else. I mean, does that make any sense? I don't know. It seemed, I understood it for a second. Now it's gone. Yeah, well, your comments were reminding me, you know, I, I, there's two aberrations here, and I'll try, to, I'll try to paint those. One aberration is this idea of like, I'm living my victorious Christian life now. I'm, you know, I am 10 times better today than I was yesterday. I never backslide. I'm better than you and you and you, but I'm not going to say that, of course, because I want you to think that I'm holy and I want to keep thinking that I'm holy. And how's your walk? Because mine happens to be a 10 out of 10. And, uh, oh, I'll pray for you. And kind of this like condescending. And what happens with all of this is a complete detachment from biblical piety wrought by the Holy Spirit where we utterly, such a person utterly loses track of their true sinfulness and isn't growing in any real, real true spiritual understanding. They're just growing in this superficial sense of their own amazingness. Okay? Now, contrast that, though, with the opposite error. Woe is me. I've never done a good work in my entire life. The Holy Spirit doesn't work. He, there's no such thing as sanctification. I am a mis- poor, miserable sinner. How are you doing today? Terrible on account of my sins. You know, and just this, oh, like, where do you see this in the scriptures? You don't see this in the scriptures either. And this will sometimes be like, even like, well, sanctification is just understanding how wretched you really are. Yeah, no. Uh, these are two opposites. And the truth is right in the middle. So here's what the truth looks like. The truth looks like as you mature in the faith, you do ever more deeply understand the nature of your sin. That's precisely growth. Because it is growth of the spiritual man and your ability to discern the disease within yourself and within others. But along with that comes an an objective growth and maturation in the faith, where the fruits of the Spirit are abounding and abounding more and more. Are there seasons in which that's not the case? Absolutely. As I read to you from the Book of Concord, um, there are, uh, yeah, the exact language, um, here it is, but each Christian also experiences differences in himself. At one time he is joyful in spirit, and another time fearful and alarmed. At one time he is intense in love, strong in faith and hope, and another time he is cold and weak. When you look at the psalmist, it's like this. When you look at the people in the Bible, it's like this. Okay, but that doesn't mean there isn't a progress, a growth, a maturation in the faith, even as you have ups and downs. It's like going on a journey, and you've got to go up the mountain, you go down into the valley, but you're still journeying, you're still progressing. And so, yeah, a part and parcel of that is an awareness of the disease that is within you and a growth of that awareness, but also an awareness of the other aspects of growth. And every Christian should be able to say, I know things and I I know more things than I used to know. I perceive things more accurately than I used to perceive them. I fight things that I didn't used to fight I've gotten rid of some things that used to be impossible for me to get rid of. These are the kinds of things that are common in Christian experience by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And we long for that perfection. We long for, that, for Christ to save us from this cancer of sin, from this body of death, this I no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells within me. 
Yeah, so that's threading the needle between those two errors, the error of, you know, I'm triumphant and victorious and so much better than you, and that's my spiritual growth, versus the, oh, I'm just a poor, miserable sinner, and I'm worse than you, which actually, which actually kind of is a pietistic boast in that system, because it's like, I'm so much worse than everybody, which is really saying what within that system of thought? I perceive sin and grace so much better than you. So that's, if you listen to this, it's just one kind of pietism or the other. It's like a light pietism and a dark pietism. The truth of Scripture goes right through those two. Okay, that's, uh, that's it. Let's, let's be done. The Lord be with you. And we'll have uh, the common table for prayer for our breakfast.